Welcome back to another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you don't know by now, my name is Christopher Brown, and I'll be your host. Since the launch of the podcast, I've been asked the same thing. Why are you doing this? And I give everyone the exact same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a conversation. Today, we often find ourselves becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of having a conversation. So with that in mind, in 2019, I started this podcast to achieve one goal. Get people talking again. With no notes, no questions, I sit down with the subject to learn about them from them. And today we continue with our special episodes with the Green Party of Canada's leadership candidates. Today, we have Alex Terrell. Alex and I chat about his time as the leader of the Green Party of Quebec, his leadership bid, and the three important topics, Aboriginal First Nations policies, rural communities, and green infrastructure. So sit back and enjoy Cross-Border Interviews featuring Alex Terrell. Okay, um... Alex, usually I would offer you a coffee, but uh, as we're a few provinces away from each other, you have a coffee in hand. Uh, so we'll just jump right into this. Uh, I usually start off with every single politician I talk to. Where does your sense of duty come from? My sense of duty came from a sense of responsibility for uh, the environment and for uh, social justice. I think that uh, it's really important to uh, stand up and make sure that people have access to things like quality public uh, health care, uh, strong public education system, that we really take the uh, the measures that we need to take to protect the climate, to protect the environment from degradation. And I think that uh, in politics, there's really a lack of people who are involved for the right reasons. And so I hope to bring uh, a lot of uh, uh, positivity and uh, a lot of uh, positive energy to the democratic system. So um, did you grow up in a household that was political? Because most people would assume, uh, as you are one of the youngest, if not the youngest candidate in this election, uh, that you would go another route, whether it be social activism, whether it be uh, environmental activism through a nonprofit, but you decided to go politics. So was politics something that was instilled upon you as a child? For me, politics is something that uh, we talked about a lot around the kitchen table as a family when I was a kid. Uh, my parents aren't politicians. Uh, they're not activists. You know, they're people who have a lot of uh, progressive opinions about uh, the news of the day and that sort of thing. But uh, they haven't been really actively involved in politics. And now your story is quite unique because uh, at, at the age of 25, you became the leader of a provincial party. Um, you took over from a gentleman, if I'm not mistaken, who had been the leader for about two years, if I'm not mistaken? A little bit less than two years, yeah. So uh, that's it. So at age uh, 25, I ran for the leadership of the Green Party of Quebec. I had been a candidate uh, for the first time in, in the previous year. Um, and um, I really wanted to get involved in, in provincial politics then because Quebec was going through a huge student uprising. And the Liberal government of the day was trying to increase tuition by 75%. And so uh, a lot of uh, different university students, including myself, went on strike. And um, we ended up uh, having the 
government fall. And the, the election actually was called in response to the student union, the student movement. The government, the majority government had actually resigned a full year before the end of their, their mandate. And so I want to uh, really go to the, to the table and to debate with the liberal candidate about uh, what his government was doing uh, towards the youth, not just with respect to the tuition, but also with respect to the really heavy handed uh, police crackdown uh, that was taking place. And um, a few months after that election, uh, the, the leader of the party, Claude Savarin, resigned. Uh, he had been there for about two years. There was a leadership race. So I entered my name and I called every single member of the Green Party, explained to them why I want to lead the party. I said that I want to unite it because there was really a lot of toxic infighting occurring at the time and that I want to really unite the party around progressive ideas. Uh, so I was lucky enough to be uh, elected in that leadership race. There was three other candidates uh, running. I was the youngest one, 25 years old. I became the youngest leader of a provincial political party in, in Canada. And um, I had to prepare the the next election was called just five months after I won the leadership. So it was a bit of an uphill battle, but we managed to make it through. And I'm now the longest standing leader of uh, the Green Party of Quebec. The, the party's existed for over 30 years. Has been the first leader to do uh, two general elections. So, why the Green Party? Why why did you join the uh, Quebec Green Party? Was it policies that you identified with? Because you talk about the uh, youth uprising. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, one of the uh, leaders of the uh, that movement went to the Quebec Solidaire Party. So, why did you decide that the Green Party was a better fit for you? Look, I first got involved in politics with uh, the NDP in, in 2018, uh, sorry, 2008 um, in uh, in Quebec. And uh, I lived through the orange wave that we had here from the inside. And, it, you know, Jack Layton is somebody who really inspired me to uh, to get involved in politics. And so I'd been involved with the federal NDP up until Thomas Mulcair became the leader, sort of shifted the party to the center, got rid of socialism, that sort of thing. And um, I had uh, done a lot of work in that leadership race uh, for Nathan Collins' campaign. And I was really disappointed to see Thomas Mulcair um, win that leadership race and bring the party to the center. And it coincided with the Quebec student movement. And, um, you know, one of the things that happened is that uh, on Earth Day in 2012, some friends and I went up to Thomas Mulcair, who was w walking in the Earth Day march, and tried to give him a red square. And not only did he refuse to take the red square, but uh, he uh, he said that none of his members of parliament would be seen wearing the red square. Of course, he's a he's a former liberal, right? Um, so uh, th that and and the fact that in Quebec, you know, the Green Party of Quebec was, uh, you know, a center left wing, um, you know. Pro-environment, pro-student movement, political party that was uh, opposed to Quebec independence. So those are some of the things that that brought me in. And uh, as you mentioned, Gabriel Nadeau Dubois, who was actually one of the uh, the spokespeople for uh, the major student unions during uh, the student uprising, ended up going with Quebec Solidaire. That was it was 2017 by the time he jumped into to party politics. Uh, but he's really a, a sovereignist-minded individual, and he comes from a sovereignist tradition. And you know, they're, they're, right now that party is talking about uh, breaking off ties with Canada um, without even holding a referendum. So uh, it's a very extremist point of view. And I think that, you know, uh, of course, we're, you know, we're proud to live in Quebec and stuff like that. But Quebec nationalism um, and Quebec independence is 
often founded on uh, exclusionary uh, politics, on identity politics and that sort of thing. And so some people think that it, it's progressive to have Quebec nationalism, but I, I don't think that it is. I think that, you know, there's so many changes that we can make um, in the current constitutional framework. And, you know, the fact that uh, Quebec is continually electing, you know, these right wing governments sort of like we have now with Francois Legault or before that with Philippe Couillard or before that with Pauline Marois or Jean Charest. Um, I don't think that things would be that different if Quebec was independent. And I think that there's a lot more uh, opportunity for progressives to implement change in the current constitutional framework. Now, um, when I when I was researching about uh, your time as leader of the Quebec uh, Green Party, you you have taken the, uh, the party to more of a left wing side of uh, the po- political spectrum. Uh, yeah. When you decided to do that, uh, was there a, a backlash from the party or did they agree with you that we needed to move to the left to in uh, to fill that void that was lacking in Quebec politics? Well, look, I mean, there's certainly a certain amount of controversy around that. I mean, I campaigned really with a, a, a very clear message of turning the party to the left. I put out a huge amount of policy uh, in my leadership campaign, and I was presenting myself as an anti-establishment candidate that was really there to shake up the party, to to get rid of toxic infighting and to move to the left. So, of course, after I won the leadership race, it was a, a very close uh, result. It came within 13 votes, um, and uh, there were some people who, who were upset. You know, there were some people who thought that we should be supporting, uh, you know, discrimination against religious minorities. It was a big issue at the time. Uh, there are some people who say, you know, not left, not right, but forward, that sort of thing. But ultimately, the members had chosen to vote for me. And another thing that, um, you know, really facilitated the, the left-wing transition in the Green Party of Quebec is that my principal adversary in the leadership race, a woman by the name of Patricia Domingos, actually broke off and formed her own political party, which was sort of, they were calling themselves sort of like a green party, but right wing, you know, so what happened is that, you know, all those right wing people or not, maybe not all of them, but, a, you know, a certain amount of them went with her and the eco-socialists were left with the Green Party of Quebec. So uh, that sort of gave us, uh, made, it made it a little bit easier, you know, to take such a, a drastic shift since those people had had left the party. And, and one of the big things that I saw uh, from interviews and uh, clips on the, uh, YouTube from you is one thing that you're passionate about is getting more youth involved in politics, getting that uh, uh, youth engagement. Uh, we see the rise of Bernie Sanders down in the States with the youth engagement, with people uh, getting out there and actually getting engaged. How how easy has it been to get those youth engaged? Because the biggest thing that I hear is while youth can be engaged, they don't vote. So how has that trans- uh, transitioned from getting them engaged to getting out and voting? I think that it, you know we've managed to mobilize a huge number of youth in the Green Party of Quebec and to give you an idea, in the 2018 provincial election, like the average age of our candidates was 34 years old. And that's over, you know, 97 people that we had running for office. We also had 58 percent of those candidates were women. So, you know, we've done really a lot to stimulate youth engagement in politics. And I think that, you know, young people have so much uh, to gain or to lose uh, by the political decisions that are being made, particularly with respect uh, to the environment. And I think that if young people, you know, see that there's young candidates their age, like in their 20s, that are running for politics that are the Green Party candidate for their district, that they're just a little bit more likely to to take politics seriously, to look at what's being presented and, and hopefully to go out and vote as well. 
So one of the things that we've seen since 20, I would say 18 with the election of the first MP, uh, well, with the BC electing three MPs and uh, MLAs, uh, green MLAs, one in Ontario, official opposition in uh, PEI, three in New Brunswick, you're seeing the rise of the Green Party. You're seeing uh, the breakthrough of the Green Party. The one area that hasn't broken through yet is Alberta through uh, Manitoba and uh, Quebec. Why hasn't it broken through? What What is uh, missing there? Because you saw the polls in the last federal election, you saw them rising, but the connection between party and voters wasn't there. So what, what does the Green Party in Quebec need to do and federally need to do to uh, to connect with voters to get them to actually get out and vote. Yeah, so that's a very interesting question because the the political environment is so different province to province uh, across Canada, and you know we've got uh, places like British Columbia where the Green Party was lucky enough to be one of only three parties in the leaders' debates during their last provincial election, and they managed to get 16% of the vote and elect three people, and like that, I think that's really that's really fantastic that they have that opportunity in Quebec. Is very different situation. We've got four political parties that have seats in the parliament. Each one of them has a certain chance of winning the election. And uh, outside of the parliament, you've got the Green Party, which is the biggest party that doesn't have seats. And then you've got the Conservatives and then the NDP behind us. So it's a much more crowded political environment here uh, in Quebec. We've got a lot of competition, um, you know, from from all areas of the spectrum, including on the left from from Quebec Solidaire. And um, so it, it is a little bit uh, a little bit more difficult in Quebec than in other provinces and I mean on the other hand at the federal level in Quebec well there's five parties right there's only five major parties so the Green Party has a, a little bit more mainstream attention I would say at the federal level uh, inside Quebec but I think that in the last campaign you know we had such an opportunity uh, to break through here but there was a series of mistakes that were that were made that really led people to turn their backs on the Green Party in large numbers uh, you know one of those things was a really controversial stand on abortion rights uh, taken by Elizabeth May where she said well you know members of parliament that represent the Green Party could reopen the abortion debate and that she wouldn't stop them and that there was nothing they, they could do and there was party discipline and that sort of thing. No party discipline, rather. Um, so that was uh, that was a big mistake. Another big mistake was um, allowing uh, candidates to support Quebec Bill 21, which is a, a discriminatory, unconstitutional law that that you know goes after religious minorities and, and the way that they dress and that sort of thing. So you know to to allow candidates to support that kind of thing when the Green Party is supposed to be known uh, for diversity and inclusion, I think was a huge mistake. There was also the, this really uh, controversial position by Elizabeth May that involved uh, bringing uh, Alberta tar sands oil to Quebec to be used here, uh, keeping the tar sands open till the year 2050 and beyond. Uh, like all of these things really uh, damaged the Green Party because we had such an opportunity. We we're up there in the polls. People wanted to vote for the environment. People were saying this is the climate election, that sort of thing. And when people looked at the Green Party, they didn't really like what they saw. So I think that all of those things have to be changed. And that's why I'm running for the leadership on an eco-socialist platform. I think that if we're really clear, we say that we are a left-wing party. None of this, not left, not right. We're a left-wing party. We stand uh, for the environment. We stand for social justice. We stand for public health. 
care or against this outer capitalism that we're seeing uh, in Canada right now. And I think if we had that clear message, we'd be able to unite the entire Canadian left behind the Green Party. But so far, we've fallen short of that. And those are some of the things I hope to change. So there's a lot that you just said that we need to d- dive deep into. Uh, the first being uh, yeah. Bill 21, Quebec Bill 21. Um, you, uh, as leader of the Quebec Green Party, said anyone who is uh, for this bill, you are not welcome in our party. That is correct, right? That's correct, because, uh, you know, when you come to these issues, you have to have a clear position. And, you know, to I, as a Green Party leader, I would never want to give a candidate like a, a platform provided by the Green Party in order to preach uh, hatred, intolerance towards uh, minority groups. It's something that's very important to us in the, in the Green Party of Quebec. And it was important for us to take a strong stand because, you know, you can't have, uh, for example, people who are from these different minority groups running for a party that's also opening the door to people who want to discriminate against them and are openly advocating for it in a political context. But at some point, you know, you have to take your choices in politics and you can't always be on both sides of these debates. And so I took a strong position. I imposed party discipline on that um, on that issue. And, uh, you know, it, it did make it a little bit more difficult to recruit candidates in certain circumstances, but it also gave the Green Party of Quebec a really credible uh, name and reputation on these issues and has enabled us to really uh, develop meaningful uh, connections and, and alliances with uh, different minority groups in the province. So I, I'm very happy about uh, the way that that, did, that went. And if I had to do it again, I'd do exactly the same thing. The other area that you talked about was the uh, Alberta oil sands. Um, if you were elected the leader of the federal Green Party, you will have to not just uh, advocate your views, but the views for uh, 38 million Alberta, uh, Canadians, uh, one province in particular, Alberta, because I'm an Alberta-based podcast, so I've got to ask the Alberta question here. Um, you have advocated for the closure of the uh, oil sands within the first 10 years of your mandate, if I'm not mistaken? The, the first governing mandate of the Green first Party. governing mandate. Um, Premier Kenny just recently, uh, I'm assuming it made national news, said that he would not work with anyone who has a differing uh, view on the oil sands than him. So how would you work with a premier who is so hostile towards what you believe? Right. So, I mean, first of all, I think that it's important to close the tar sands within the first governing mandate because there's a huge amount of environmental damage that's being created up there. I, I traveled to Fort McMurray uh, last summer. I saw it for myself. I breathed the fumes. Uh, I saw the destruction that's taking place. I flew over it in a small plane. And like what's happening up there is, is a huge problem for Canada. And it's the greenhouse gas emissions are going through the roof. And this project is not sustainable. And I understand that a lot of people have made a lot of money off it. It's created a lot of jobs economic activity. I have, uh, you know, uh, family members who have worked uh, in the tar sands. And so I really do respect the people that work there. Right. And in this campaign, I've presented uh, my version of, you know, what we call the Green New Deal. And so the way that I'm proposing to address these issues is to offer a job guarantee for all fossil fuel and fossil fuel dependent workers and uh, to offer them this job guarantee in the energy transition, because we know that the energy transition is going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars. We have to build all kinds of renewable energy infrastructure, high-speed rail to every major Canadian city. These are massive infrastructure projects that are going to take a lot of uh, skilled labor, a lot of construction, and and a, a lot of 
you know, skills that would be transferable from the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, the way that I propose to give this job guarantee is by creating a series of new crown corporations that will provide much of the products and services required for the energy transition. And so if you look at, for example, there's a lot of people that will, you know, fly from, let's say, New Brunswick to Fort McMurray to work uh, in the tar sands, right? Now, those people, they're making money off it, but they're not necessarily good jobs because the conditions are not very good. You're breathing toxic fumes. You're often working at night. Uh, in the winter, it's rolling 24 hours a day. There's only about four hours of daylight up there in Fort McMurray. So if you can tell those workers that, look, under the Green New Deal, not only are you going to have a job guarantee, but you'll be able to do this job in your community. And we can guarantee that because since it's a crown corporation, we can decide where these different factories and installations are going to be set up. And we can you know, tailor it to where uh, the demand is for, for jobs. So I think that uh, the way to transition away from uh, the tar sands is not by, you know, attacking the rank and file workers or that sort of thing. It's by uh, offering uh, the, the this job guarantee in renewable energy. And I think that it's really important to get as many uh, oil and gas workers as possible on side with this planet. I'm not saying that to to agree or that it's unanimous or anything like that. Like there'll always be a certain amount of opposition, and I think that you know Jason Kenney is really steering uh, Alberta in the wrong direction. He's doubling down on uh, on this fossil fuel stuff. He you know despite the fact that even now oil is trading at negative, they're paying people to get rid of the oil in many cases. Um, you know he's still saying no. We need to continue developing. We need to expand. You know just a couple months back they were talking about the Tech Frontier mine, a huge expansion to the to the tar sands. And, um, you know, if Alberta continues on this unsustainable path, um, the economic consequences would be far uh, more drastic than if we begin to transition away from these industries as quickly as possible. Because, I mean, Canada is not on an island. There's, uh, you know, countries all over the world that are transitioning away from fossil fuels. The demand is going to go down over the next few decades. And, I mean, if Alberta is focuses its economy only on this one industry, then I think that there'll be really dire consequences going forward. Well, I, I think you're right. I think we have to diversify the economy to begin with because you can't just tomorrow morning cut off the taps and say, okay, we're officially done and no, nothing, no more oil sands, no one's going to have a job there, nothing at all. But the question is now, with everything you just said, what? how, how do you get the buy-in from Albertans? How do you get the, like, the Green Party has traditionally not done well in Alberta. The highest they've come is second place in uh, Calgary Centre in 20, if I'm not mistaken, it was the 20, uh, 2008 by-election when Joan Crockett, the Conservative Member of Parliament for that area, won. So how do you get the buy-in from Albertans who are so reliant on the oil sands, who are so reliant on uh, uh, making a living from that area? Right. So, I mean, in politics, uh, you know, you're often confronted with scenarios where you have a controversial idea and you got two approaches to solving these things. Some people will sort of water down their ideas, uh, moderate them. Other people will get better at explaining the ideas and have, you know, genuine conversations and convince people that, that, that their opinion and their plan is, is the best way forward. So uh, I'm aware that uh, what I'm saying is controversial amongst Albertans and I, I'm aware that people could be angry by it, that sort of thing. But I think that out of that anger comes an opportunity to discuss the way forward, an opportunity to debate. And I think that in the past, the Green Party has sort of shied away from its environmentalism in Alberta by saying things like the tar sense can, can 
continue till year 2050 and beyond. Uh, I don't think that that's what the Green Party should be saying. I think the Green Party should be very transparent in the fact that we're an environmentalist party. We want to transition away from fossil fuels. And this is how uh, we're going to do it uh, in Alberta. I mean, Elizabeth May's approach, uh, you know, beyond everything that I've just mentioned, also included, you know, investing government funds in bitumen upgraders and, and refineries. And, you know, I think that it really sends the wrong message to tell the uh, the oil and gas workers that, look, we don't have a clear alternative for you. The alternative that we're presenting you is more investments in uh, fossil fuels. Like the job guarantee, I think, is something that's a lot more palpable for uh, Albertans uh, than, uh, you know, saying that, look, we don't have an alternative. We're going to we're going to phase it down and, and we'll invest in a few refineries for the next couple of decades. But after that, uh, it's over. And don't don't look to the federal government for support. I think the federal government should be there to support uh, the oil and gas workers. And and I, I'd be really interested in having uh, this kind of conversation. And a lot of people, you know, say that while burdens, they all have the same opinion. They're all 100 percent pro oil and gas, that sort of thing. I see you're shaking your head. I agree. It's not the case. I mean, when I go to Alberta, there's a huge environmentalist community, particularly in Edmonton. I mean, when Greta Thunberg came, there was thousands of people on the steps of the uh, the Alberta legislature. So there is a progressive uh, pro-environment community in Alberta. And those are the people that I'll be seeking uh, to work with uh, first. And I hope to find the support of those people uh, to, to help deliver this message to all Albertans that the Green Party is there uh, to, yes, transition away from fossil fuels, but also to support them uh, in the process. So um, before, because we could spend like a whole episode just talking about uh, yeah. the oil sands, but we want to talk about your leadership. So earlier, uh, late last year, um, we had an election. Uh, Elizabeth May, uh, the Green Party won three seats. Elizabeth May announced that she was stepping down. And then, if I'm not mistaken, in early January, you announced your bid for the leadership. Um, I, I got to ask point blank, why did you, why now? Why do it now? Why not wait 10 years? Or why did you decide that you need to put your name for it in this leadership election? Well, I mean, I've always been an outspoken voice in uh, the Canadian Green movement. And I think that it's really important to have a left eco-socialist youth voice represented in the leadership race. Uh, of course, uh, the timing also worked out uh, relatively well because in Quebec, we're uh, really at the halfway point uh, of our four-year uh, government mandate. So uh, it's a bit of a quiet period for the Green Party of Quebec. So I had the time uh, to be able to uh, to run for the leadership. And you know, I think that it is important to have a fundamental debate about the way forward for the Green Party. I mean, we've been under a single leader for 14 years now. And uh, I think that it was really the time, you know, to have this conversation. I think that there is a lot that that I'm contributing to uh, to the debate. Um, so those are some of the reasons that that I decided to run for the leadership. Um, you have made it known that you like to push the button a little bit uh, when the Le uh, Green Party announced their. Um, the, the amount that you would have to pay to get into the leadership, you came out and said that you were sell the party was selling itself to uh, the highest bidder. Um, why did you say that? Because that probably ruffled a few feathers across the uh, country. But you went out there and you said, you know what, this is not right. And uh, if that's what it has to be, I'm going to do it. But it's not the way it should be. 
That's it. So, I, uh, as you said, I, I, I said that the $50,000 entrance was the equivalent of putting the party for sale, for putting it up on the auction block, uh, to, to, to selling it to the highest bidder, and to tra- and really transforming what should be a grassroots democratic leadership race into a fundraising contest. And, you know, big money should not be mixed with politics. We see what the effects of that are in the United States. Myself, I'm a product of a public financing system here in Quebec where uh, parties are finance based on the number of votes that we receive. The maximum contribution that uh, a person can make to the Green Party of Quebec is $100 per person per year. And, um, you know, Stephen Harper abolished the the public funding of federal political parties uh, in 2011. And the effects have been catastrophic all across uh, Canadian politics. All of the parties have shifted uh, to the right, and it makes it so that when uh, you know political leaders are speaking, for example, in leadership debates, well, sure, they're speaking to the electors, but they're also speaking to their donor base. And I think that the Green Party is supposed to have a tradition of participatory grassroots democracy. When Elizabeth May ran for the leadership back in 2006, the entrance fee was $1,000. And the spending limit was $50,000. Now you fast forward to 2020, and we've got an entrance fee, which is 50 times higher, and a, a spending cap, which is 10 times higher. And I've heard Elizabeth May speak passionately many times about how when she was considering running for the leadership, she had to go and take out a loan for $10,000 to pay for a campaign and saying that it was a big sacrifice and she wasn't sure of the outcome and that sort of thing. Well, now they're asking us to do at least 10 times more. And it's not just that, but it's that they also keep 25% of the donations that you raise. So for me, like to run a, um, you know, a, a maybe a $20,000 campaign to, to cross the country in a Honda Civic a couple times, um, like I'd have to raise $80,000, right? So like that's a huge amount of money. And, uh, you know, there's also the fact that the candidates are able to contribute $25,000 to, to our own campaigns. So like it really favors uh, rich folks and, and and people who come from wealthy families are able to, you know, donate the $25,000 themselves, get a, get, get a few family members, give $1,600 each. And it, it may makes it so that the leadership race has is, is really been transformed and reduced to a fundraising contest. And I don't think that uh, fundraising in itself, based on personal connections, is a uh, clear indicator of political support. I think that the members should be able to decide uh, by voting. And whoever gets the most votes should win. I don't think that there should be these preconditions um, of these excessive financial barriers. And furthermore, the, the $50,000 is far more than parties like the the NDP are you know charged i mean uh, in 2012 the NDP had a leadership race uh, it was a 15000 $15, entrance fee they had eight candidates in 2017 when Jagmeet was elected they had a $30,000 entrance fee and four candidates and then the green party comes and say oh we you know we want to be taken seriously we're a big party we're going to charge 50,000 how many leadership candidates would there be? Uh, we've yet to see it. And I should say that because of the COVID crisis, the the party has has put down the entrance fee to from fifty to thirty thousand dollars. But it's still a lot of money, particularly in this economic context. And you know, these big uh, entrance fees make it so that um, you know young people have a much more difficult time. Because you know, myself, I have a big political network here. You know, I have ninety seven candidates running with us in the last election, and uh, you know, as I mentioned, their average age was thirty four. But it, it's a lot more difficult to ask for a $1,500 donation from somebody who's maybe in university or just finished university, they're paying off their students compared to, you know, somebody who's maybe in their 60s, has, you know, has a whole career sort of behind them, has been accumulating wealth over a certain amount of time, owns property, etc. Like the circumstances are very different. And I don't think that you can... 
use uh, financial support to infer uh, political support. Um, one of the areas that, uh, like you've just talked about, is COVID. Um, it's changed the way you've uh, had to campaign across Canada uh, with virtual meetings, with uh, outreach, with uh, constituents associations across Canada being the number one thing that the Green Party has to do. What are you hearing? What are you hearing from the grassroots Green Party members right now? Are you hearing things that are aligned with you? Or are you hearing things that you're going, you know what, I need to think that way about it? Or are you saying, you know what, that's not the way I'm thinking. This is the way my, this is my platform. I'm putting it out the way I want. So what are you hearing and how are you adapting to each individual uh, region of Canada? Because, like I said, you, you've been a political party leader in Quebec. So that's one province. Now you are... 12 provinces or 10 provinces and three territories. So it's going to be a lot different. So how are you adapting to each region? Well, look, I mean, so far I've had a really positive response from all the different regions across the country. I mean, I started a Green New Deal tour uh, right before the, the crisis uh, set in. So I managed to make it through Ontario, Alberta and, and BC. And I got a great reception everywhere that I went. But with this crisis, it's really making it very difficult because, you know, as candidates, we're really cut off from the membership right now. Uh, we don't have uh, access to their email addresses. Uh, so that's something that I've you know, been somewhat critical of is that, you know, we sure have their phone numbers. There's 20,000 people. It's a little bit difficult to call all of them if you don't have a highly funded call center working for your campaign. Uh, and we're not able to connect with them by email. And, you know, despite the fact that this crisis is set in, they haven't changed these rules. So it's really difficult for us to have any kind of meaningful interaction with the membership in these circumstances where we're not able to get out there to, to the local communities. I mean, you know, I had planned on, on crisscrossing the country, you know, from uh, March, uh, fe February, March, all the way until October. It's not possible. Uh, the party's not really making it easy for candidates to connect with the with the membership. And sure, there is social media and that sort of thing, but it it does become a little bit of an echo chamber, you know, this, it's the same people on there all the time sort of thing. So it's really difficult for us to connect with the rank and file membership of the party in any kind of uh, meaningful way. And, you know, I had called on the party along with many other candidates to, to push back uh, this leadership race uh, so that we could actually have the, the meaningful conversations that we need to have. And unfortunately, they're pressing forward with the original dates. They still plan on holding uh, uh, the leadership convention in uh, in Charlottetown, PEI, uh, the beginning of the month of October. So it's, it's very difficult circumstances. And uh, unfortunately, the party has been somewhat unwilling to make changes that should be made to to account for what's taking place. And are you uh, so like you said there, it's sort of an echo chamber of uh, what you're hearing online. But during that Green New Deal tour that you had when you were out in a BC, in Alberta, in Ontario, in Quebec, your home province, talking to Green Party members, what was their reaction? Was it, hey, you're young, we, we want to take a chance on you? Or is it uh, we don't know who you are because you're not as well known nationally compared to uh, one or two of the other candidates? So what was it? What, what were you hearing? Right. Well, I, I should say that it is a little bit difficult to, to generalize, you know, because I did hear from from hundreds and hundreds of people. But uh, people are very much receptive to the idea of having a younger leader. They like the fact that I'm experienced, like I've been running the Green Party of Quebec for six and a half years now. We've had a lot of success. Um, and people know where I stand also, because this entire time I've been taking positions. Uh, before I set out on that tour, I, I uploaded to my website uh, almost all of my Facebook posts from the last six and a half years. I translate them to English so people can read. They can go to my 
my site, alexthrow.ca. They can search by keyword, uh, by by topic, and so on. So uh, I think that that people, you know, are receptive to that, and they're also receptive to uh, the idea that the party needs to turn left. There's a lot of people that were frustrated with a lot of the mistakes I mentioned in the last campaign. Uh, that think that the party needs to, you know, go beyond like this traditional base of of environment and really start tackling social justice in a meaningful way to be more outspoken on the environment, to have less moderation in what we're saying, to take on capitalism with a more uh, bold uh, stance and, and, and bolder language as well. Um, so people were quite receptive. But I mean, there is also a, another other factions of the Green Party, which are very much, uh, you know, former conservatives, uh, former liberals, people who think that it's already too left wing and that, you know, they really want to bring it back to, uh, to to, to be more like the progressive conservatives, you know, and I, I think that like Elizabeth May is close with a lot of those, those kind of people. You know, they talk about fiscal conservatism and the fact that we're not a left wing party, we're not right. And in the end, we're a centrist party that is very similar to liberals, but with a little bit more environment. Um, so like there is that and there is a bit of a generational divide also like the the green party gets a lot of his electoral support from uh young voters you know people from age 18 to 35 but um you know it's run mostly by people in their 60s right so like there is a little bit of a generational divide there's people you know there's some people who don't like to see young people arriving that sort of thing like there you know i do have opposition within the party i'm not going to pretend that uh i'm going to be the consensus candidate or something like that you know it is it is an uphill battle and it, it's difficult also as a young person like to, to begin with sometimes but then um, as a young person with a very explicit and bold political agenda it sometimes makes things even more difficult because um, not just the age is also the agenda that's coming with us. You have resistance on both fronts. But, um, you know, all in all, I think that the, the membership of the Green Party of Canada is far more progressive than uh, the leadership has been over the last uh, few years. And so people are open to, to change. So how do you win the voters? How do you win the uh, soft liberal support, the soft NDP support, the soft conservative uh, support? Because to win a general election, you have to make a coalition of everyone. You can't just rely on one section or another. And that's the the the, the thing that happens with the liberals. And the, the, the worst kept secret is they run to the right, they govern to the left, right? So that way, the next election, they can say, look what we did, win those progressive voters. But when they release their platform, here's what we're going to financially do to help everyone out. So how do you, as a self-described social eco, uh, sorry, socialist. A socialist, how do you yeah. potentially win over those right-wing voters to come over to the Green Party to say, you know what, you got to take a chance because it's not today, it's not tomorrow that we have to worry about the environment, it's today. So how do you, yeah. how do you win those over? That's a, a very good question. And I think that, you know, people are looking to vote for politicians who have a very clear platform, who are very sincere in what they stand for, who have a clear message, a clear vision for the future of the country, and, and people can be inspired. So I would hope to convince as many people as possible of the importance of the environment, the importance of social justice. And I think also that, you know, with this COVID crisis, people are going to be increasingly open to change because, you know, there's a few things that have happened. We've seen how important it is to have strong 
collective government action, you know, to fight uh, threats, you know, to our health and, and to our society and, and, and to our environment. So I think those some things there can transfer over. There's also the fact that capitalism is falling apart with this crisis. You know, we take a few weeks off and then there's going to be tons of businesses that are closing and be people going bankrupt, you know, and and I think that the crisis can go on for a lot longer than than some people think. Um, so I think that, you know, the crisis does provide an opportunity to trace a new path forward for the country. And, you know, when I was doing my Green New Deal uh, tour and I'm talking about, you know, reducing consumption, reducing the work week from 40 to 32 hours per week, uh, offering this job guarantee, like at the time there was very little unemployment. Right. And now a few months later, we're in a completely different scenario. So a lot of these uh, big spending uh, public infrastructure projects uh, are much more palpable in uh, dire economic circumstances than they are when capitalism is is going at full speed and everybody's getting rich and there's a huge amount of economic growth every single year. So I think that people are going to be open to a big change. And, you know, the next election campaign, uh, both federally and provincially here in Quebec, are going to be very interesting because we'll really, I think, be able to have a, a discussion about how to move forward and about some of the fundamentals of our society and our politics, rather than just how we're going to create jobs in the next two months and, and, and how we're going to keep the money rolling in. We talked about um, connecting with those voters. The three areas that I want to touch on for policy are rural communities, Aboriginal issues, First Nations issues, and we've already talked about it beforehand, but infrastructure, that uh, yep. the environmental if infrastructure. <laughs> so for the Aboriginal policy, you on your website, I read through your list of policies, you want to uh, adopt the United Nations Declarations of Rights for Indigenous People. Why? Yep. I think that, you know, Canada has a hugely problematic history with the way that we treat Indigenous communities. We've got rampant systemic racism towards Indigenous people. I mean, you know, the fact that in many reserves in Canada, you've got, you know, four bedroom houses with over 20 people living in them. You've got a, a huge amount of boil water advisories. Uh, there's, there's poor health care conditions. There's poor education. And, you know, all of this comes down to systemic racism. There's no reason why those communities are entitled to less services than, uh, you know, all the rest of Canadians. And it's, you know, been a long time that we have all these reports, you know, that come out that say we need to do more, the, you know, that qualifying the, um, you know, the situation as a genocide against Indigenous women and girls, etc. We've got international criticism. We've got a huge problem with the way that we treat uh, First Nations in Canada. And so I think that it's very important uh, for, uh, for people, uh, for all Canadians to take responsibility for uh, some of what's happened. And, you know, as individual Canadians, we may not feel responsible uh, for the residential schools or for uh, these abuses of, of indigenous rights. But the reality is that we do have a collective responsibility because these decisions were made on our behalf by the Canadian government, uh, you know, historically and, and, and to this day. So that being said, I think, yeah, it's, it's important for people to take a responsibility. And um, I think that we should uh, implement the United Nations Declaration on uh, on Indigenous Rights. We should apply the recommendations of the different reports that have come out, whether it's the Truth and Reconciliation or, you know, the, the Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Aboriginal 
uh, women. So those things are really important. I think that the Green Party should be uh, at the forefront of these of these issues. Uh, one of the things that led me to run for the Green Party of Quebec is that um, you know it was it was following the Idle No More period, and um, I had uh, you know been involved with that movement as a participant. And you know shortly after the movement, um, I came into contact with Raymond Robinson, who's a, a Cree elder from northern Manitoba. He was one of the three people that was on hunger strike during the Idle No More movement. And, um, you know, I had started um, sort of uh, putting him together a website. He wanted to become like a public speaker and that sort of thing. And he didn't really have the uh, the communications entourage that, that some of the other higher profile hunger strikers had. So I started putting that together for him. And uh, I booked him a talk at Concordia where I was a student at the time. And when he came there, he launched uh, a second hunger strike, this time with no liquid. So, you know, for those who are familiar with hunger strikes, you can't really go very long without liquid. You can go a long time without food, but liquid, you know, you're limited to five, six days. So basically he started this hunger strike and uh, it sort of fell into my lap, like the responsibility to get the word out about that this was happening and to make sure that there was media attention, this sort of thing. I was a very spiritual guy. I didn't know how far he was going to, to push this. Like, was he going to sacrifice himself uh, for this cause or not? Uh, you know, I was obviously hoping that he he wouldn't go that that far. Um, so that was, um, you know, a big responsibility that fell onto my shoulders back in, in 2013. And, uh, you know, we managed to uh, to have a candlelight vigils in, in 30 different uh, cities. Uh, on, the, on the fifth day of this, uh, this hunger strike, we met with the conservative minister of Indigenous Affairs and uh, the, the chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Sean Atlio, and, and, and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, having been up front and seen, like, how uh, desperate the situation is where people are, you know, starving themselves just to bring attention to a political cause. Uh, you know, it's something that, that really marked me and, and sort of gave me the uh, the will and the ambition, you know, to, to go forward and to run for the Green Party leadership because it is a really big responsibility as well being a Green Party uh, leader. So, so that's it. I mean... Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know which which direction you want to go with. This. No, I, I want to really talk about because uh, the, the issue is uh, um, the, on the flip side of that is uh, the right would say, why do we need another governing body implementing policies for Canada? Why can't Canada come up with something similar to the United Nations Declaration of Rights uh, for Indigenous People? Why do we have to follow what the UN says? It's just a bo- not even an elected body. It's just people appointed to sit on a in a round room, basically telling us what to do. Why do we have to listen to them? Why can't why cannot why can't Canada come up with something to help our Aboriginal communities and have? Why do we have to rely so heavily on the U- United Nations? Right, that's a really good question. I mean, for one, uh, Canada has not managed to get the situation under control uh, itself, and I think that you know the United Nations has a, a certain set of, of values and principles of up- upholding uh, human rights. And sometimes it is really important to get an outside perspective on what's taking place in your own country, right? So whether it be uh, internationally, you know, you talk about the Middle East, for example, and the United Nations coming out with, you know, stances in favor of uh, of Palestinian human rights, for example, that are difficult for certain countries to, to support uh, because of their political uh, considerations. But, you know, it, it, it 
I think that having the United Nations like, uh, you know, criticizing Canada's record on uh, indigenous rights is something that's important. Like we should take their recommendations. We should not dismiss them and say, oh, we're going to do this the Canadian way and that sort of thing. Like if there was no problem with indigenous rights in Canada, implementing the, the, the UN drip would be irrelevant, right? Like if there wasn't a problem, we wouldn't have to fix it. But the reality is that there is a huge problem right now. Indigenous rights are being trampled on. Uh, they're, they're, they're forced into uh, extreme poverty, you know, without proper food and healthcare and water and all that sort of thing. I mean, you know, back a few years ago when the, the Red Cross came into Attawapiskat because of the housing crisis, people were up there in minus 40 degree weather living in plywood shacks. Like, you know, that's not supposed to be Canada. Like Canada, people are supposed to have access to uh, decent quality housing. We're supposed to have a social safety net in place. And I find it unacceptable that this social safety net is variable depending on race and depending on location. So I think that the, you know, it's not about like whose idea it is or whatever. Like we need concrete uh, action now and having the United Nations, uh, you know, establish this uh, protocol, I think is something that we should embrace rather than than run away from. So what would be the first thing you would do under a Green Party uh, government to help Aboriginal communities who are facing those uh, hard uh, economic times who, like you said, live in a plywood house, who don't have access to clean drinking water? Because let's be honest, there is a an abundance of things that we need to fix. What would be step one for you? Step one under the Green New Deal would be to guarantee uh, access to uh, clean uh, drinking water, to healthy food, to quality housing, uh, to, to quality uh, health care and education to all Canadians regardless of uh, race, regardless of location, also very important for Indigenous communities. Um, and, you know, that in itself, like, is going to take a lot of work because we're so far behind on this. I mean, you know, Justin Trudeau had promised in 2015, well, we're going to get all the, the Indigenous communities off the boil water advisory. It's not the case. I mean, uh, while I was on the Green New Deal tour, I was uh, in uh, London, Ontario, and I went to visit the chief of the Oneida uh, First Nation, which is about a 30-minute drive away from London, Ontario. Like, they don't have clean drinking water there. They're drinking out of bottled water because the city of London hasn't been able to upgrade its sewer system uh, quickly enough. And, and so the um, wastewater from London, when it rains, is washing into the water supply of this indigenous community, which is downstream. I mean, these are things that can be fixed by investment. Like, it comes down to the money. Are you going to pay the money to have the drinking water infrastructure there? Or are you going to say, no, it's not a priority. We want to do something else. We want to give tax cuts. We want to, uh, you know, build something else, whatever. We want to reduce the deficit. Like, it's a question of priorities. And there's absolutely no reason that Canada cannot achieve these objectives of, of clean drinking water, uh, quality housing, and, and everything I just mentioned, if we put it as a priority. No, understandable, and I agree. Um, moving into uh, rural communities, on your website, you uh, I, I, I would assume that you are in favor of a carbon tax. Yep. Okay. Uh, on your website, you said that you would implement a $200 a ton carbon tax in yep. your first year. Yep. That is up $150 from what we are currently being uh, charged by this government. Um People will say that that would cause the cost of living to skyrocket in this country. Uh, this country, what do you say back to them? 
Right. Well, that's a, a very interesting question. And um, you know, in the Green Party of Quebec's uh, platform, which I had a, a, a big role in, in, in drafting and writing, uh, the policy that we came up with for carbon tax was, you know, as you mentioned, to put a $200 per ton carbon tax starting right away with an increase of $40 per ton uh, per year. And um, you know, during the, uh, the, the Second World War, there was um, fossil fuel rations in Canada, right? So people had ration cards. They could only buy like a certain amount of, of uh, gasoline like per week or per month. And, you know, we decided not to go as far as to have rations, but instead we came up with this carbon tax and we would have a, an exemption given. So each person would have a, a carbon card, right? And on this carbon card, you'd have an exemption for a certain number of liters of gasoline per month. And the magnitude of your exemption would be determined based on your proximity to public transit and your ability to reduce your emissions. So people were living in rural communities. Um, you know, it's important also to note that uh, children would also receive an, ex an exemption for a certain number of liters of gasoline. So a family who's living in a rural community that has three children and drives a minivan, for example, and has to travel long distances to get, uh, you know, things like groceries, get to work, etc. Like they would have like a relatively large exemption to the carbon tax. Whereas people who live in a big city center right next to a subway station, for example, would have a very small exemption to the carbon tax. And I think that that's a way to balance uh, these things because it is more difficult for people in rural communities to reduce their consumption of gasoline. However, it's not impossible to reduce it a little bit. There are things like carpooling, uh, you know, putting uh, your uh, your trips, combining your trips together, not going to the big city like three times a week, maybe going once a week instead. Like there are things people can do. So I think that, you know, people who live in rural communities should pay a little bit of carbon tax, but certainly not as much as the people who live right in the big cities. So you're, it sounds like, and I apologize for asking this, but it sounds like you're playing class warfare here now. You're saying if you live in a rural community, we'll help you a lot more than if you live in an urban center. So how do you justify making two class systems in some sense to say, well, we'll give you some uh, discounts on the carbon tax that we want to implement, but if you live in this area, we're not going to give you as much. Right. So if you live in a, a city, you wouldn't have as much of an exemption to the carbon tax, but generally you don't use nearly as much uh, gasoline. So it's proportional in, in that sense, right? And I mean, like myself, I live pretty close to downtown Montreal. I walk to the grocery store, it takes me three minutes. I got the subway two minutes away. Like, I don't use that much gas. You know, in fact, since the COVID crisis started, I haven't used even used a tank of gas. Right? And I, I do have a car because I do have to, you know, get outside of the city and, you know, go for all these environmental battles and visit these different communities and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm far less dependent on gasoline and on the, a private vehicle because of my location. So somebody like me, I could afford to pay a higher carbon tax uh, than, than somebody who's really forced to drive, you know, 40 minutes to, to get to the grocery store type of thing. So I think that there, there's a balancing that needs to be done there. And if we were to apply uh, an even carbon tax to all regions uh, of the country, uh, exactly the same carbon tax rate that the rural communities would be, you know, somewhat severely disadvantaged by that. Now, That's what I'm trying what about um, uh, for like heating houses? Because uh, while we talk about gas and getting places, one of the areas that uh, when the uh, carbon levy, as they called it, when they implemented in Alberta through the NDP was uh, implemented, uh, everyone said the sky was going to fall. My home heating was going to uh, rise. My grocery bills were going to rise because uh, things gas prices are going to be higher. Uh, 
like the, my day to day insurance is going to be higher because I'm going to be driving a lot more to go to these places. So how do you look at the uh, house side of it? Because we've talked about the traveling part of it, but the home eating, the grocery bills are going to be higher now too. So how do you offset that? Right. Very good question. So, you know, for the home heating uh, aspect, uh, one of the parts of the Green New Deal is really investing in upgrading all of the buildings in Canada to make sure that they're more energy efficient. So, you know, for example, when you add insulation to a building, you really decrease very significantly the the, the energy consumption of that. Um, If the government is there to, you know, subsidize uh, the installation of additional insulation and, uh, you know, also different technologies like for example, geothermal. And, you know, in Alberta, a lot of people are, are really into drilling, right? Well, you need to drill for geothermal as well. And there's a lot of drilling equipment that's sitting there in Alberta that's maybe not going to be utilized in the next little while because of the downturn um, in the oil and gas sector caused by the COVID, right? So that, that's a way to put people to work, you know, build the infrastructure. Like if we're not able to export oil and all that sort of thing, well, use that equipment, start, you know, re- really making sure that we're able to go forward without using as much energy here. Um, that's something I think that that's really important. And, you know, it's, it's very important to make sure that people have access, as I mentioned, to healthy food at reasonable uh, costs. You know, there's even debate as to whether we should have capitalism involved in the food system in, in the first place, right? Um, but it, these things are, 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 are somewhat complex. And, you know, when the price of transportation goes up, you also have, uh, you know, increased demand for local, locally produced uh, food. Right. So there are benefits that can come from that. One of the things that we proposed in the Green Party of Quebec was to start a network of government owned um, greenhouses that would operate using the hydroelectricity that we have here in Quebec. And it'd be a way to uh, to have a certain amount of food security, but also to you know share the knowledge of how to grow and cultivate food with uh, members of the community. These would be community centers where people from the neighborhood come in and volunteer and work with this sort of thing with the children and everything like that. So like there are opportunities that arise from increased transportation costs and with the covid we're seeing how you know we're somewhat over dependent on uh, imports for all sorts of things you know whether it's for medical equipment or or for food and that sort of thing and we would really be well served to be a little bit more self-sufficient in a lot of these respects the other thing that's important to note is that you know, Canada can't really impose like a carbon tax on the United States, right? So um, a lot of the food that's coming up from California, that sort of thing, I don't think that the carbon tax would have a very big impact on that because a lot of these trucks are filling up south of the border. And, you know, we could consider giving an exemption for to the carbon tax for the transportation of, of things like food. Okay, so you talked about infrastructure as well, and that's the last area that I want to talk about. One of the things that I found interesting on your uh, website was you were in favor of uh – building a high-speed railway to link a C to C to C, basically. Um, We see the decline with COVID, and I know this is a bad time to compare apples to oranges here, but with the decline of uh, COVID, with the rise of COVID, we aren't traveling as much. Uh, We are not uh, going to be going back to the norm where we are all stuck in a uh, train or an airplane sitting side by side anytime soon, I I don't think. what, where did this idea come from? And do you think that you would be able to get the buy-in from provinces when we can't even agree to 
work together and open our borders to interprovincial trade, but yet we want to build a railway from one side to the other to make it more uh, friendly, eco-friendly to travel Canada. Right. That's that's very interesting, right? And of course, then these proposals for the electric train came before uh, the, the COVID crisis did. But I mean, the 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 fact is that we're far too dependent on uh, you know aircraft transportation, like in Canada, just to get from Montreal to Toronto. Like people are taking flights all the time, and it's not necessary to have such a fossil fuel intensive um, transportation uh, grid, right? And um, there's no like green energy for planes. There's no way to do it. I mean, you can have biofuels and stuff like that, but the planes consume a huge amount of energy and we could save so many emissions and so much cost if we were to invest in a uh, high-speed electric uh, train system that would go across the entire country. And I mean, COVID, like I said before, I think that it's going to be long, right? We're going to be in this crisis for a long time. But after a couple of years, I think that people will start to travel again, right? It's like, it, it might be tough now, you know, this summer, this fall, next spring, maybe. But eventually, like people, I think will start traveling again, particularly within Canada. And there are still flights going back and forth within Canada, even uh, under the circumstances that we're in now. Um, so I think that that's important. And I think also that a, a railway infrastructure is something that lasts for hundreds of years. I mean, you know, the, the uh, Cross Canada Railway was built in the 1800s. It took them 10 years. And okay, there was a lot of, you know, forced labor and that sort of thing. And, you know, a lot of problems with, with, with the way that it was done. But, um, you know, building uh, a railway, uh, you know, to every major Canadian city, high speed um, could really be, uh, be something that's going to be there, you know, any generations. And people sometimes, especially in the Green Party, say, oh, you know, we should be fiscal conservative. We shouldn't spend all this money. We should live within our, our financial means and all this. Well, personally, I think that future generations would be very happy to have such big, important green infrastructure in place that they can depend on. And, you know, we're far too dependent on the airplanes, on the private vehicles and that sort of thing. I mean, we can't even get bus service in Western Canada, like Greyhound canceled all their, almost all of their bus service. Um, so you can't even take a bus from one side of Canada to the other, right? There's no public transit other than, than, than airplanes. And there's the via train, but I mean, the, the, the prices are expensive. It takes a really long time, etc. So I think that high speed electric train would be very important. And, and also, you know, putting the a lot of the merchandise off of the, the roads and off of the tractor trailers and onto the rails would be a great way to save uh, save a lot of fossil fuels. And um, so there, there's so much that we can do in the, this area. And like what I'm trying to do is propose like a progressive vision for the future of Canada. And I would hope that uh, the, the provinces and territories would, would get on board with this. And I think that, you know, should I be elected as leader of the Green Party and then eventually as Prime Minister of Canada, I think the fact that I would be there would be a sign that people are ready to get on board with all of these big changes that I'm that I'm putting forward. And I think under those circumstances, people would go for it. I mean, things have always been controversial. I mean, even in implementing a public health care system was incredibly controversial. I mean, the doctors went on strike at first. And, uh, you know, a few years later, not only did it you know, they maintain that that impose that public health care system in Saskatchewan, but you know, all of the other provinces also uh, have their own public health care systems. And you don't hear people now saying like, "Oh, we should 
should cancel uh, Medicare and people should go back to an entirely private system. Like you have some right wing people who are saying, well, we'll chip away at it. You know, we'll privatize this and that. And, you know, Alberta particularly and stuff. But um, nobody is willing, like not even the most right wing Canadian politicians are willing to say like, that's it. We need to abolish Medicare. So I think that there's a way to convince people and, and people might be afraid of change. But, uh, you know, I prefer to look at these things from an optimistic point of view. And and, and I'm very hopeful that uh, we'll be able to build a, a brighter future for the country. So your episode is going to be coming out on uh, July 2nd. So what is your pitch to the, the voters? What is the pitch to the – because if I'm not mistaken, you have until July, uh, July 31st to buy your membership to vote, correct? Uh, I think it's uh, 30 days before uh, October second. Uh, okay, 2nd. okay. I, I was a little. Uh, I think it was uh, the 31st that you had to de- have your deposit in, if I'm not mistaken. So you are talking to the average voter right now. The uh, the 700 people who listen, the people that I'm going to share this with, the people who are uh, tuning in right now. What is your pitch to them right now? My pitch to them is that uh, the Green Party of Canada can really be a force for progressive change uh, in Canada. And I think the way to do that is to vote for a leader who has very clear positions on the future of the country, on the future of the party, somebody who's young, who's had experience leading a Green Party uh, in the past. And um, I think that, you know, I would be a great person to to lead it, that I'd be able to build a lot of support, that I'd be able to go head to head and debate with Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer or whoever the next conservative leader is. People are looking for change. Canadian politics has stagnated for way too long. We need to get youth involved in the process. We need to bring uh, progressive uh, points of view into politics. The left-wing people in Canada uh, you know, should stop neglecting party politics and really get fully involved. And I hope that if I would be elected as leader of the party, I'd be able to inspire people to really uh, valorize the uh, the democratic process, to uphold it, to, to really inject positive energy into Canadian democracy. And uh, so I invite everybody who's listening to become a member of the Green Party and uh, to consider voting for me uh, in this leadership race. So for those who are listening, the uh, website address for Alex is in the show notes and also to buy a membership will be in the show notes as well. Alex, I want to thank you very much for this. Greatly appreciate it. You uh, you answered all my questions and I thought I was going to like I didn't know how this was going to go. So thank you very much. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I really appreciate uh, this opportunity to come and and talk with you and everything. And I'll look forward to uh, to following your podcast in the future. Yeah, I'll, like I said, when we when we come up to it, because uh, I sent out an email to all the candidates, and I was expecting one or two to get back to me, and then they all got back to me. So <laughs> this whole Great. one week of shows <laughs> is now like three weeks of shows. So yours is going to be out on July second. So thank you very much, Alex, and have yourself an excellent weekend. Okay, or week. Thanks. You too. And once again, thank you to our guest for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview, and I really hope you did too. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. 
We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week. Thank you.